2: Hello, listener. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you about our upcoming live show on Sunday, January 26th at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn, part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Now, this is a late afternoon show, 5 p.m., and you can drink a beer during it, a beer or a white claw or a fancy cocktail or just a water. Or nothing at all. Or nothing. The name of the show, the theme of the show this year, is Landmarks Live. Now, whatever could that
3: mean, you're going to
2: have to get your tickets to find out and join the party.
3: And it will be a party. So head over to the Bell House website. That's thebellhouseny.com to get tickets for our show on Sunday, January 26th. And we'll see you there. Episode 307 of The Bowery Boys. The Holland Tunnel, the engineering marvel of the Jazz Age. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers.
2: And Greg... Happy 2020. Happy 2020. And as we head forward to our own roaring 20s, we're going to look back here a hundred years for this episode into the jazz age. And
3: in particular, looking at a great engineering achievement. An achievement that for some reason we have never really tackled on the Bowery Boys. And that is the story of the Holland Tunnel.
2: Now, this is truly one of New York City's, one of America's great engineering marvels. Those were crickets. <laughs> Those were crickets. But then, so then, why, why don't more people celebrate the creation of the Holland Tunnel?
3: Because the story is inspiring. It's got all kinds of crazy twists and turns. Although the tunnel goes pretty straight, mm-hmm. but this story has drama, and and people have a tendency, it seems, to just sort of shrug off. The subject is like, well, you know, it's just a tunnel that's going to and from New Jersey. In fact, this was true technical marvel. But perhaps we should address something up front here. Mm -hmm. Why do tunnels overall just get a a bad rap? Is it that they don't inspire? I mean, we're comparing them to bridges, right? And bridges, well, everybody loves a good bridge, you know, and they're actually like a destination for many people. People propose atop bridges. They paint them. They take photos of them, and they, they write songs about them. But let's just say that Simon and Garfunkel never wrote a song about the Holland Tunnel. Oh, the Tunnel of Love wasn't written about the Holland Tunnel? No, not that tunnel. And I don't think many people have, like, framed photos in their bathrooms of the Holland Tunnel. But they deserve better, Tom.
2: And in the case of the Holland Tunnel, it solved a very urgent
3: dilemma that the region faced in the early 20th century, Yes, because when it formally opened in 1927, the Holland Tunnel was the first vehicular passageway between Manhattan and New Jersey. It predates the George Washington Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel. And the reason this is such a big deal is because by the
2: time it opened in 1927, passenger cars and freight truck use had grown exponentially. In the city, and of course in New Jersey. And yet the only way to get those cars and trucks across the Hudson River between Manhattan and New New Jersey
3: was to float them across on ferries and barges. And that is one mighty and wide river. How would the Hudson be conquered? And even if it could be built, how
2: would New York and New Jersey be forced to play nice with each other? After all, they would literally have to meet halfway, meeting halfway in the Hudson. That is. Well, buckle up. Uh, actually, and- Tom, there are no seatbelts on cars back then,
3: so uh, <laughs> try another one. Well, get in and hang on for your life as we as we cross through the surprising story. Of the Holland Tunnel Okay Greg Well um, Why don't you situate us here Uh, Situate us that is on the story Of this sub Aquatic vehicular tunnel <laughs> running between these two states. <laughs>
2: yes, the Holland Tunnel. We've
3: never really had a situation like this. <laughs> no, where you just don't even see it,
2: right? Right. Well, the Holland Tunnel is a vehicular passage underneath the Hudson River, which connects New York, in particular Manhattan, and New Jersey, in particular Jersey City. Today, it's operated by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. It's actually... Let's be honest it's a it's a tunnel we could refer to it as a tunnel but mm-hmm. it's really two tubes which at their deepest
3: are at 63 feet underneath the surface of the Hudson two tubes because one is running west to New Jersey that's the northern tube and the southern tube Traffic runs east from New Jersey to New York. Yes. On the New Jersey
2: side, the tunnel entrance is located at 12th and Marin Boulevard in Jersey City. Drivers pay a toll of $16 to travel into what is the Southern Tube, which is 8,371 feet,
3: to emerge on Canal Street in Lower Manhattan. Okay. Okay, and that's that's the cash price. It's cheaper if you have an Easy Pass. Oh, sure, right. And it, is it the same experience driving from Manhattan to New Jersey? B- believe it or not, it's actually longer going to New Jersey. It's eight thousand
2: five hundred fifty-eight feet, and into that northern tube, which you enter at Broom and Hudson in Hudson Square. Mm-hmm. Well, guess how much the toll is going that direction.
3: Uh, (laughs) I do know this And I still can't believe it It is free
2: Yes, it's zero To leave New York to go to New Jersey, it's free And
3: we will get into the reason behind that in a few minutes
2: Now this is one of four vehicular tunnels under rivers in New York City The others are the Brooklyn Battery, the Queens Midtown, and the Lincoln Tunnel And of course there are a great number of underwater tunnels that serve trains and subways And when did the Holland Tunnel open? It opened on November 13th, 1927, although construction began 100 years ago this year, in 1920. When it opened, it was the longest underwater vehicular tunnel in the world. Although today there are, there are so many that are much, much longer. In fact, the longest tunnel, which is the Lairdal tunnel in Norway, is 24.5 kilometers. So you could fit many, many, many Holland tunnels
3: into this tunnel in Norway. Well, you've done a great job of situating us here on a topic that really from like the street, you can't really see. Well, you can't see most of it, but there are elements of the tunnel, very
2: important elements that you can see, and those come in the form of ventilation towers. On the Manhattan side, there's one along the water at Pier 34, and there's another one, more of a, just a ventilation building, um, inland on Washington Street. These are known as the lungs of the Holland Tunnel, and the reason we have it, the Holland Tunnel at all, which we'll talk about later on the show.
3: And it is funny, right? Like when you're going up the west side of Manhattan, that that tower that's out in the piers, there is something kind of mysterious, even kind of ominous about that structure. Yeah, that beige
2: building with almost no windows, right? right. So let's talk for a minute about how people have historically gotten from New Jersey to the city of New York so let's go back to like the 18th 19th century here of New York when it was just Manhattan right the city of New York is just Manhattan
3: how did people get back and forth across the Hudson
2: yes and I don't mean individuals who of course could just swim I mean like specifically (laughs) like with cargo or with a carriage or with your family or whatever I'm guessing that they took a boat or more specifically a ferry, right? A public transport, which operated regular service between two destinations. And there have been ferries that have operated from both of these shorelines since the early Dutch days, but even 200 years later. So like by the mid 19th century, people are still using ferries exclusively,
3: and as we talked about in the Brooklyn Heights show recently, by that time, by the mid-19th century, technology had improved a bit. Mm-hmm. There were steam ferries. Right, no rowing
2: required anymore. In fact, the, it was in 1812 that the first steam ferry left from Jersey City to Cortland Street in lower Manhattan. So, and in the late 19th century, these would be further improved with sidewheel
3: steamers. And that was an innovation because it could propel... the the ferry forward and and you could more quickly get to your destination. Yes. Sped things up.
2: Right. And you could steer it. And also it could handle the waters during very inclement weather.
3: So by the late 19th century, then you have these ferry terminals. You have a kind of line of ferry terminals on the New Jersey side Mm -hmm. across from lower Manhattan.
2: Yes. From Jersey City to Weehawken and further up the line, of course. And all of them by this time were owned and operated by railroad companies.
3: And we've talked about this on other shows, like on the Penn Station show, Mm -hmm. that train passengers would come to New York from all over the country through New Jersey, and they would arrive here on the New Jersey side of the river where they would have to disembark, get off the train... And climb aboard a ferry to float over in Mm -hmm. order to just arrive in the city. A rather inglorious
2: entry into New York City. I think arriving by boat is kind of nice. (laughs) Well, no, this is the way you did it unless you happened to ride a train owned by the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad, which was the only train that could travel into New York City directly, meaning into Manhattan directly, taking passengers directly to Grand Central Depot and that's
3: Vanderbilt's railroad uh, that would come down the Hudson River but that wouldn't serve all the destinations in the country so many many people were coming in like on the Pennsylvania railroad and stopping here on the jersey side but what's amazing if you think about it is that by 1900 you have bridges that have opened or are opening like the Brooklyn and then you know the Manhattan and the Williamsburg bridges connecting Manhattan over the East River to Brooklyn But over here on the west side, over the Hudson River, it's a totally different situation. And that made the west side and all those piers kind of a big mess.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, the conditions of the East River are different, obviously, than those on the Hudson. For one, the Hudson is part of the Erie Canal system. Mm -hmm. So So there's so much shipping on the Hudson River at this time. And, of course, it's far wider. And, of course, one thing we need to remember is to develop a bridge between two cities in the same state is one thing. It is a far different thing to build one between two separate states in an era that is known for impassable bureaucracy (laughs) and corruption.
3: (laughs) That's right. And by 1900, Brooklyn and New York were part of the same city. So that made bridge construction over the East River even easier. But are you telling us, though, that By the early 20th century, there were no rail tunnels underneath the Hudson between Jersey and New York?
2: No, no, there were tunnels already built. Two systems that predate the Holland Tunnel. First of all, there is a tunnel system that even dates back to the early 1870s. An engineer named DeWitt Haskin attempted to link via tunnel between Jersey City and lower Manhattan for freight trains. Unfortunately, this was a bit of a cursed project. In 1880, 20 men died in a tunnel accident while they were constructing this, and by 1900, this project was scrapped. However, this unfinished work was then picked up again by the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad Company, who built two underground tunnels for use as mass transit, okay? That's the big big difference here. They they built it for passenger service. Passenger service and electrically run trains or trolleys um, underneath the Hudson. So the first tunnel that was constructed was to Manhattan's Christopher Street which opened in 1908. And then the second from Exchange Place in Jersey City to downtown Manhattan, today's area of the World Trade Center. That was done in
3: 1909. Those routes sound rather familiar to us today. It sounds like those are the PATH tunnels that are still in use today. That's correct. These tunnels were
2: renamed the PATH, or the Port Authority Trans-Hudson line, in 1962.
3: But again, these served commuters or passenger traffic.
2: Right. The other tunnel system under the Hudson, was built by Pennsylvania Railroad, who also electrified their trains. This is very, very important. You cannot do this at this time unless you have electrified tracks. They ran a tunnel under the Hudson to connect to a brand new train station that they had constructed on the other side here in Manhattan. Of course, that is Pennsylvania Station. Their tunnels were completed in 1908, and Penn Station
3: opened in 1910. And those tracks are famously still in use today, um, usually working just fine. But again, these, these were not intended for freight, and this still really just accounts for a smallish percentage of the traffic that needs to get across the Hudson. The rest of the traffic, a majority of the traffic, was freight.
2: And into the 1910s and even actually into the 1920s, most of this is still being transported over the water. And keep in mind, I don't mean just the basic supplies for living in New York City, but there are hundreds of factories in New York City producing products for the entire country. Like think of the Oreo cookies at the Nabisco plant, for (laughs) instance.
3: (laughs) Millions of them. And they would have to then be produced and then loaded onto vessels to be floated across the Hudson where they'd be put on trains, freight trains, to head off to their distribution points and markets. But also don't forget that these trains were serving the port of New York. So many of the things coming from the Midwest or from parts south would be pulled on trains up to the Jersey side of the Hudson and be floated over to be loaded onto ships that took off from the west side or from the Brooklyn Piers. So
2: not a surprise that the freight piers and loading docks on both sides of the water here were a total disaster so congested on both sides of the river that work virtually was at a standstill to quote from the new york times in 1919 quote the ferries are so congested that long double lines of trucks including horse drawn and motor vehicular trucks extending for blocks are constantly waiting at the approaches This congestion causes delays and inconveniences and is aggravated by storms, fogs, ice, and
3: heavy river traffic. And don't forget that many of those trucks are carrying, you know, perishables. Yeah. Like a huge truckload of milk, you know, that would have to get to its market. Meat. Yes. But go back to where you just said, you mentioned the phrase motorized vehicular trucks. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've just introduced a very important element of this story that it, we're not just talking about freight in general coming off of trains, but we're talking about trucks that are bringing things to the city too, or taking things you know, from loads that had been sent over from New York. Yeah, a major twist to the story here, and I would say a growing crisis, an
2: unavoidable crisis, which is, of course, the development of automobiles. And in particular, in 1913, the Ford Motor Company was able to mass produce Model Ts on the assembly line, which lowered the price and fueled a surge, if you will, of motor cells um, to middle class families. So as a result of this, there was just an inevitability that we were all going to become an automobile country. And how exactly would the trucks Get across the river? Well, ferries could take a limited number of automobiles and, and freight trucks, mm-hmm. ferries and other vessels, but there's no way that this was a long-term solution. It was completely unworkable. The states of New York and New Jersey were forced to come up with a solution or risk losing the industries to many places in the within the United States that are, were, of course, much more accessible by car.
3: It really was ludicrous that this huge, important port was separated by a body of water that could only be crossed by a ferry or a barge or a lighter or whatever. And this inefficiency, by the way, of getting goods out of
2: New York City or the New York City area quickly was actually making these goods more costly.
3: Because you had to pay for that crossing over the Hudson River, all the boats, uh, the people running the boats to float them over. But there was also a lot of corruption taking place. Oh, I'm sure a lot of things that would fall off the back of a truck, so to speak. Well, yeah, it it was common for things to just sort of disappear. But there was also a lot of money to be made by criminals and racketeers, you know, in the process of all of that loading and unloading and reloading because the, the trains would pull up. They'd have to get their freight unloaded onto a barge, and then once the barge got to the other side, it'd have to be unloaded again, you know, to be taken off to a ship or unloaded right into another truck that would take it off someplace. It sounds like it would be incredibly expensive to pay for all that loading. Well, and if you wanted to cross the river, you had to use certain pre-approved loaders, okay? You couldn't just do it yourself or bring your own guys along to do the loading. And of course, the approved loaders... Uh, were controlled by some very important people. In his book, Crossing Under the Hudson, the author Angus Gillespie calls this the quote, loading rackets. This would happen on both sides of the the Hudson. You as a truck driver or shipper, you had to pay off and employ these loaders in order to get your load onto a barge or a lighter, and then also pay the guys to unload them on the other side of the river. And Gillespie notes that this racketeering was controlled by some really powerful bosses, including Frank Haig, who was the mayor of Jersey City for three decades between the nineteen teens and 40s, and also William McCormick of Jersey City, who was so powerful, he controlled all of the loading and unloading for the Pennsylvania Railroad's freight on both sides of the river. He was so big that they called William McCormick, Mr. Big, wow, we're
2: in some serious on the waterfront territory here, <laughs>
3: and Sex in the City territory.
2: <laughs> oh, carries carries Mr. Big. Sorry,
3: say it's a bit of a dated reference, you know, but it
2: still works. But okay, so basic question: mm-hmm. we we do have a tunnel, at least one that they could use this Penn Railroad tunnel. Why couldn't they just send freight via these tunnels?
3: Well, those tunnels, as you mentioned, had been constructed for passenger service, right? specific to Penn Railroad. Right. And then there were also the tracks along the, the path lines. Um, but you couldn't really unload freight in Penn Station. There's no room on those platforms for the logistics of unloading freight. Mm-hmm. And also, in terms of platform space, the path platforms are even smaller. I mean... There's hardly enough space for like passengers on the Christopher Street Path platform, <laughs> for, forget like, you know, unloading cars. Yeah. But they could attempt to build freight-only tunnels and uh, there were even attempts made, right? As you had mentioned, yes. Um, and that's what, you know, like most responsible ports would have done. <laughs> Built tunnels just for for freight trains, but that of course would have been really expensive. But also, it would have been the railroads, right, who would have built those tunnels, like the Pennsylvania Railroad. Those railroads were also profiting off of that ferry service for the freight. Right. They're already making money on the ferries. Yes. And on top of that, some of the other major decision makers who would have like been involved in that plan to build new freight tunnels, they were the same people getting the kickbacks for that loading racket. So basically, this was just
2: a sort of corrupted, built-up system, and nobody wanted to rock the boat in any major way. Rock the boat?
3: Oh, I didn't even sorry, didn't even know that was an accidental pun. They just come right out. Yeah. So in the end, no freight-specific tunnels and tracks were ever built. So when did
2: conversations get seriously underway to Build some kind of tunnel or some kind of bridge for automobile traffic.
3: Well, a commission had been formed in 1906. Okay. So for decades, people Mm -hmm. have been talking about this. Called the New York and New Jersey Interstate Bridge Commission. It was looking into bridges and tunnels. And, you know, various proposals would be discussed for years, including one proposal, they called for three different bridges, one at 57th Street, one at 110th, and another at 179th Streets. Why are all those so far uptown? Because of the elevation of the island. Oh, you yeah. know, they, they needed to allow passage for boats beneath the bridges, and the locations downtown were at, at a much lower elevation, and as you mentioned, all of that shipping traffic had to get under them. I mean, that's the motivation behind the George Washington Bridge. That's a high bridge. <laughs> yeah. There was another early plan for a tunnel between Canal Street near the west side docks and Jersey City. Where the Holland Tunnel is today. That's right. And all of these plans would be discussed for many years. In 1913, that commission compared the pros and cons of building a bridge versus building a tunnel. And they came to the conclusion that building a pair of tunnels would be much cheaper to build than a bridge at the same spot. Down around Canal Street. It would only cost about a quarter of what a bridge would cost because that bridge would have to be so tall. And not only would it cost a lot to build it up so high, you'd have to buy up a tremendous amount of real estate in order to build the approaches to go all the way up to the bridge. You would have to essentially rebuild Canal Street entirely for that length of an approach. Which doesn't really sound like a terrible idea, rebuilding (laughs) Canal Street entirely. But it, but tunnels were starting to look, by the 19-teens, more attractive. Now they just had to figure out how to work together, these two states, and develop a tunnel plan, build it, pay for it, and then run it once the thing was open. Now, naturally, you had
2: conflicting interests on either side of the Hudson here. They, they were on different wavelengths here in New Jersey and here in New York.
3: Yeah, you had very powerful interests who wanted the tunnel, like a lot of people in business down around, you know, the lower west side. Tammany Hall didn't want the tunnel. They probably couldn't figure out how to make any money on the sure, tunnel. Yeah. And on the Jersey side, you know, you had northern Jersey counties who would benefit from the tunnel, but they needed the support of other counties, you know, like in southern New Jersey, who really weren't that excited about paying for that sort of a giant project. And they were more interested in getting their own bridge built connecting them to Philadelphia. So there's a whole mess of conflicting priorities here. But even with all of this conflict by 1917, both states had created their own commissions to work on this project, the New York Bridge and Tunnel Commission and the Hudson River Bridge and Tunnel Commission of New Jersey. So
2: in 1917, though, we now have war. The country is at war and they have seems to be really dragging their feet on a project like this. They've been speaking about it for over a decade by this time.
3: And the situation with freight was only getting worse. It was even getting dangerous during the brutal winter of 1917 and 1918 when much of the Hudson River froze making it impossible to cross by ferry or barge or or lighter meaning that none of that freight could get across for an extended period of time. Now that January of 1918, temperatures fell to a record 30 below Fahrenheit and stayed very, very cold for a long stretch, only making it up to negative five. And this wasn't just here in New York. It was throughout the Midwest, up the Atlantic, and up into New England. Homes and businesses were running out of coal every day. Industries were shuttered in order to preserve coal. But New York was hit especially hard. Um In fact, here's an article from January 6th in the New York Times at the beginning of that crisis. And it's explaining why New York was hit so hard. In fact, the headline is why coal shortage hit New York the worst. And it, it explains that it's because many of the residents and the businesses in New York City only had one day's supply of coal. Okay, they didn't because there was, you know, no space. People were living in such cramped quarters, or they had such tiny businesses, and they were in charge of their own heating. They didn't have adequate coal storage, and thus had to buy coal every day or every two days. And so here, New Yorkers ran out of coal simply because the coal supplies were frozen in place in train cars over in New Jersey, and they simply they couldn't be loaded onto the barges and float over. So this situation actually got deadly
2: for many New Yorkers. Oh,
3: this continued for weeks and it only got worse. Here's um, an article from February 6th headline coal shortage now very acute alarms officials subhead many places near famine because this wasn't even just affecting coal. It was also affecting food supplies and milk supplies. Mm -hmm. People were really in a panic and it wouldn't improve until the weather warmed up a bit in February and ferries could resume their trek back and forth across the Hudson. But it really underscored this desperate need that the city had at this point for tunnels to ship freight. So mm-hmm. it needed like an actual disaster to to make progress happen? The two states felt real pressure to find a solution. Um, And they reached their own agreement in September 1919 for the construction and operation of this new tunnel, a tunnel that was to be called the Hudson River Vehicular Tunnel. And they agreed that New York and New Jersey would share the cost. And who would they put in charge of this tunnel project? Well, they appointed a chief engineer for the project, a 36-year-old man named Clifford Milburn Holland. Now, Holland had made a name for himself on subway tunnels, including the Duraliman Street Tunnel and the Clark Street Tunnel and several other tunnels. He was known as a real hardworking, sort of straight-shooting, serious engineer. What was his plan
2: specifically for this particular tunnel? Because it was a little different than the other tunnels that had been built thus far.
3: Well, the year before, 1918, the New York Commission had asked for design submissions, and they got 11 different proposals. And they were also putting pressure on cost-cutting measures because they knew it was going to be expensive. They were looking for innovations that might help them save money. It was during the war, after all. And a seemingly winning proposal came from Major General George Gothels, uh, who was a very famous and very well-respected civil engineer and uh, army general who had overseen the construction of the Panama Canal. So everybody knew Gothels' name, He drew up this plan for an enormous 42-foot diameter tunnel that was made of a sort of concrete block. Mm -hmm. So it was cheaper than using cast iron. But it was so big that it included two levels, each level with three lanes of traffic in one direction. So six lanes of traffic on two levels inside one giant tube. Something doesn't sit right with me.
2: This uh, this doesn't (laughs) sound workable a, a concrete tunnel underneath the hudson river
3: well the concrete part was was intended to be you know the cost saving measure okay. um, it wasn't proven that that would work nobody had constructed a vehicular tunnel like this before mm-hmm. so this was untested the three levels you know on both levels yeah. were actually pretty narrow um, and there was also concern about the ventilation because mm-hmm. six lanes of traffic going through, pumping out carbon monoxide uh, back in a really dirty era of the automobile. Those poisonous fumes needed to be exhausted efficiently. And there wasn't yet a solution for that.
2: Gothels was a really big deal. I mean, in fact, there was a bridge named after him. Later. <laughs> yep. Later. Um, so so he would be a very prominent figure. Who would kind of stand up and say, well, this is actually
3: not the best idea. I have a better one. Exactly. And that's why it put the, the tunnel's chief engineer, Holland, in a bit of a pickle as he was trying to study the various plans and he took issue with those parts of Gothel's plan. So he developed his own plan, um, which was comprised of... Two smaller tunnels, each of them only 29 feet in diameter. The northern tunnel with two lanes of traffic heading west to New Jersey and the southern tunnel with two lanes heading east into New York. And instead of using concrete to construct those tubes, he'd rely on cast iron, which he had already used before on the subway tunnels. And why exactly were two tunnels... Mm-hmm
2: with two lanes of traffic in each one, considered an improvement over
3: one that had six lanes of traffic. Well, first of all, the lanes would be wider, right? Okay. Which is two lanes. But also because the two smaller tunnels would actually require less digging than the one larger tunnel. Less because... Well, if we need to brush up on our geometry (laughs) a little, and I have paper and pencil here... You could figure out, if one was equipped correctly, one could figure out that there's actually less area in the two smaller tunnels than in the one larger tunnel. Sure, okay. So there would actually... Holland's two smaller tunnels would require less digging than Gothel's one big tunnel.
2: Although they could transport larger vehicles. Right, because the lanes were wider. Mm-hmm. Which now we know is a very good idea. And would there be one one exit and one entrance ramp... For, for both on either side. That's what Gothel's plan was like.
3: No, Holland spaced the approaches to the two tubes out by a couple of blocks in order to alleviate some of the traffic.
2: And that's why they're different lengths. That's why one is larger oh. than the other.
3: Well, finally, in March of 1920, it was the chair of the New York Commission, General George Dyer, who finally basically selected Holland's plan over Gothel's. A groundbreaking ceremony was held on October 12th, 1920, on Canal Street, over at Washington Street, the future location of one of the tunnel's four ventilation towers. And now would begin, of course,
2: one of the most ambitious construction projects of the early 20th century.
3: We'll get to the construction and opening of the Holland Tunnel after this. This episode of the... On April 19, 1995, a federal
2: building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly, but there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
1: You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems.
2: Bowery Boys is brought to you by Bowery Boys
3: Walks, the official walking tours of the Bowery Boys podcast. We work with some of the very best tour guides in New York to bring our podcast to life in the streets. These small group tours will take you through Greenwich Village in the 1960s, Edith Wharton's New York, the Broadway Theater District, and starting soon, Greg, our newest tour, Chasing Down the Ghosts of the Elevated Railways.
2: Ooh, I like the sound of that one. There are new tours rolling out every week. Check out the current schedule and book a tour at BoweryBoysWalks.com.
3: That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. Join us and get ready to walk through time. So how exactly
2: does one build two parallel underwater tubes... Ventilation towers and all the infrastructure that you would need to get in and out of tunnels. Carefully? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, with lots of very precise land acquisition. So, you know, the tunnels were designed to
3: precisely lay at very specific spots on the riverbed. And people were digging from both sides of the river, so they actually had to meet up underwater at a very specific spot. With no
2: room for error. None. <laughs> I mean, expensive if you had. And these engineering decisions affected which properties on land would need to be condemned and rebuilt. And this was before GPS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this was all done on blueprints with Pencils, there Geometry. Were, I mean, if there was a major problem with acquiring a property to condemn it for some reason, it's not like you could move the entrance a block. You know, you, you didn't have any wiggle room at all. Mm. So on the Manhattan side, for instance, so we did lose some precious things due to this, and including on the Manhattan side. The architecture of note that was demolished was a vestige of the very old neighborhood called St. John's Park.
3: Which we talked about in the Tribeca show, that was the first sort of upscale neighborhood um, developed by Trinity Church. Why was that demolished? Well, much of it
2: had been demolished by that freight terminal that had set, had sat there. Vanderbilt's, yeah. yeah. But there were still some early 19th century homes that were sitting around here. And St. John's Church was here. That was demolished in 1918. But these homes
3: had to be cleared away. So we have no vestige of St. John's Park. The site of the once elegant St. John's Park is today's traffic circle that the eastbound tunnel lets out into. So when you arrive... Yeah, that
2: rotary. Yeah.
3: Where you're spit out of the tunnel when you're exiting into Manhattan from the tunnel.
2: So we did lose a little bit of our history with this with this construction.
3: Now, I'm not going to get into
2: every single detail of this extremely complicated construction. Oh. But essentially, they're digging two tunnels that are headed east at the same time that they are digging two tunnels headed west. They're going to meet in the middle, under the water. Each of these tunnels, then, would connect to ventilation shafts. And those shafts would be connected to four above-ground towers. These ventilation towers, so the two on the Manhattan side, two on the Jersey side, of course, would have a total of 84 fans of which 56 of them would be running at any given time okay so massive fans would be used to create an intricate airflow system within these tunnels which would allow fresh air to come in and exhaust bad air would be blown out now if you would look at a cross section and many did in their newspapers as this was being constructed obviously the noxious air from all these automobiles rises. Mm-hmm. So it would be taken out at the very top of these tunnels would be these exhaust ports. So that's where all the bad air would exit from. Meanwhile, the fresh air would flow in from the bottom of the tunnel. There would be these little openings along the, uh, the roadside here um, near the road level.
3: So the best air, the freshest air in the Holland Tunnel mm-hmm. is at the bottom of the tunnel. Yes. The worst air, the nasty stuff is way up high. Yes. And getting sucked out. And getting sucked out and blown away. Right. And new air is coming in the bottom. Yes. And the fans were
2: so powerful. I'm, I'm very impressed by this. I love a big fan. Um, You're a fan. <laughs> I'm a fan of big fans. It was such an effective system that air in the entire tunnel can be replaced Every 90 seconds. Wow.
3: That is a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> but this ventilation scheme, if you will, mm-hmm. was kind of new technology, right? Mm-hmm. But other aspects of digging under the river, were they just relying on sort of established? Digging technologies at the time because they were digging subway tubes,
2: subway tubes, bridges, you know, had their foundations sunken into rivers. All of these employed caisson technology. And that is, of course, how they would build the Holland Tunnel. In fact, the the New York caisson, so the the caisson used on the New York side, was the largest caisson ever built. It was a chamber... Sorry, you're
3: waving your hands as you do when you get excited about caissons.
2: <laughs> it was a chamber. It was 108 feet high and 93 feet
3: wide. You could fit a whole building in there, a whole tenement.
2: You could. A huge building. And it, it was so large, in fact, that it was launched from Staten Island on December of 1922, as though it were a ship. In fact, Clifford Holland's 12-year-old daughter, Anne, smashed a bottle of champagne against the hull of the caisson and declared, quote, I name thee the New York River caisson.
3: <laughs> I name thee a little too young to have champagne. <laughs> but could you could you please just refresh us on caisson technology. How do those work? I know it's pressurized air. Yes. I know you have uh to be really careful. (laughs) Yes, you you
2: do. It is an air pressurized chamber where workmen would employ boring shields slowly burrowing into the river, rock, or mud. So this was an air pressurized chamber that was lowered into the ground, Mm -hmm. and then they could operate the shield from there digging into the rock. Now, as it dug forward... This device would shield men from any kind of cave-ins, and it moved very, very, very slow. And then those, those sections that were dug, as they would move forward, they would be secured every so often with steel rings,
3: So they were adding rings as this thing moved forward. They were building the tunnel as they moved forward. Mm -hmm.
2: To quote from the book by Gillespie, which you mentioned earlier, quote, this required the removal of 404,000 cubic yards of material, roughly equal to the volume of the Woolworth building. Wow. The process was labor intensive. Nearly all of the mud and sand and stone had to be hand shoveled from the working face at the end of the working tube, into small cars, and then moved out of the tunnel. This process alone would take the labor of about one thousand men a day. These are the the sandhogs. The sandhogs as it was the term of the day. And do we know anything about them? Any of, like their individual stories? There, there aren't a lot of individual anecdotes from the men. We just know that it was hundreds, thousands of people were eventually employed on this project. Obviously, but. Specifically, the sandhogs were mostly immigrants, Irish, Italian, West Indian, Polish. But really hard labor. Yeah, and in dangerous conditions. Not only for the fear of accidents, of course, but this lurking danger, which of course they all knew very well, the lurking
3: danger of Kayson's disease. Also called the Benz, which mm-hmm. we mentioned before, and resulted in a horrible and painful sickness which afflicted many of the men who had worked down in the caissons building the the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, and
2: dozens got sick on this project, although engineers knew at this time, they knew so much more about this disease that conditions and work times were a lot more regulated. So it wasn't quite as deadly as the Brooklyn Bridge caissons. But there were some fatalities associated with the Holland Tunnel. And its most famous victim, perhaps, was the chief engineer himself, Clifford Milburn Holland. He was so stressed out and exhausted by this project, which had been going on for many, many years. I mean, he had such an important responsibility on his shoulders that during the process, he suffered a complete mental breakdown and was replaced on the project by his lieutenant engineer, Milton Freeman. Holland then retreated to a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, which was famously operated by the nutritionist John Harvey Kellogg.
3: He of the cereal fame. The cornflake King himself. So Holland had to go off to Kellogg's sanitarium? Yeah, I mean this. Was, well, this was
2: a big deal. This was the renowned healthcare facility of the day. Was but it was also this very well-known spa and retreat. Kellogg had a great reputation. Unfortunately, though, Holland arrived at the sanitarium in an extremely weakened state, so weak that he had a heart attack at Battle Creek and died here on October twenty seventh, nineteen twenty four, following a routine tonsillectomy procedure. He was 41 years old.
3: And by this point in 1924, how far along was the construction of the tunnel? Believe it or not, and
2: really tragically, I think, uh, given how much progress had been made, just two days after his death, the two ends of the northern tunnel... You know, there's the northern one and the southern one. So the two ends from the New Jersey and New York side finally met up. And Holland's calculations and those of his engineers had been so precise that both tunnels lined up to within only about three quarters of an inch.
3: Whoa. That's impressive. Well,
2: after a series of public mourning... You know, he had been so associated with this project that on November 12th, it was announced that the tunnel would be named for Clifford Milburn Holland and would become forever known
3: as the Holland Tunnel. And so at that point, then his second in command, Milton Freeman, not Milton Friedman. No, 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 no. Milton, Milton Freeman, Freeman, Yes. Would take over.
2: Although, unfortunately, tragedy would strike again just a few months later because Freeman would die of pneumonia at his home on March 24th, 1925. And so he would be replaced just a couple weeks later by a man named Ole Singstad. Singstad had been working chiefly on the ventilation project up until now, Mm -hmm. had worked on other tunnel projects in the New York City area, but it was actually Singstad who then ushered the project forward to its completion. He would be in charge as both tunnels would eventually meet each other. And at that point, the next phase began, which was the paving, the plastering, Mm -hmm. and the lighting of those incredibly long tunnels. And please
3: don't tell me that anything tragic happened to
2: Singstad. No, no. no, Singstad actually lived a long and healthy life. He lived into his uh, 80s. He died in 1969. And he's buried in Greenwood Cemetery, by the way. Phew. So let's flash forward to August 21st, 1926, when Governor Al Smith of New York and Governor Arthur Harry Moore of New Jersey went on a test run through the tunnel. They were the first passengers from the Brooklyn Times Union the very next day, quote, they were the first persons not connected with the construction of the tunnels to pass through the underground passage that now links the two states. That's August 21st, 1926. And Tom, if I may put this in a greater context, Mm -hmm. in that same newspaper in the Brooklyn Times Union, this article ran underneath a much larger story with a huge headline that said Rudolph Valentino suffers attack of pain and fever. Valentino would die two days later after this ceremonial ride on in the Holland Tunnel. So just to put this in a larger jazz age context and to to understand the significance of this architectural achievement, how it was like landed right here in the middle of the Roaring Twenties.
3: And for more on Valentino, we have an entire podcast on Valentino's death in New York City and the aftermath from that. Uh, But you mentioned that first ride through by the governors in August of 1926. But still, people would have to wait a while before the tunnel opened because they hadn't finished off those pesky ventilation towers.
2: It was one thing when it was a single car going through the tunnel. That's right. really You don't really need the ventilation tunnels for a single car, but they couldn't open it up to traffic yet.
3: They needed all the fans in place, and they needed to test it out, too. In fact, they would test it in early 1927. They found the air to be breathable, although the the city inspectors came in and they disagreed. They led some really rather remarkable tests um, to try out. (laughs) I don't know if you came across these as well. Um, Let's just say here's an article from The Times, uh, November 4th, 1927, headline, Automobile Burned in New Tube as Test. Holland Tunnel Experiment Made to Allay Fear's blaze put out in three and a half minutes system works smoothly so they were testing to see what would happen if tragedy struck a car burst into flames would that smoke be sort of snuffed out and yes in fact those fans could get wow. that okay. clear out the air in three minutes and so finally the tunnel was officially opened on november 12th 1927 and my goodness, here in 1927. I can imagine how they
2: celebrated. <laughs> maybe, oh. maybe a little, a little secret hooch in the pocket, but
3: uh, parties. Well, oh, listen, President Coolidge even got in on it. He was on his yachts. Um, although he pushed a button that on his yacht called the Mayflower that somehow unleashed flags, uh, unfurled flags at both ends of the tunnel. I mean, it was covered. This was national. Yeah. Even uh-huh. international news It was covered in all the states in all the papers, of course, in the city, including this one, which I also found um, in the Brooklyn Times Union. Headline, New traffic era hailed at opening of Holland Tube. Vast throngs witness the ceremonies at new link of greater city with mainland. Um, and thousands of people celebrated by walking through the tunnels. Walking oh, wow. through the tunnels. And there and back, according to this article, quote... In order to inspect it, expressing wonder at the immaculate appearance of the enameled tiled walls, the soft glow of the lights, and the perpetual gale of cool air driven into the tunnel by the powerful fans. I
2: have to say, personally, I don't think that walking through the Holland Tunnel is something that I need to put on my bucket list in 2019. I don't know about you.
3: You need to embrace your inner urban explorer, because I think that that... (laughs) Maybe that
2: would be fun. But they loved to do things like this back then. It was clearly a hit.
3: Um, let's just say that within three weeks, 500,000 vehicles had passed through the tunnel.
2: Paying vehicles, right? Because they had a toll from the start.
3: That's right. They paid 50 cents each way, or about 8 or $9 today. Unbelievably, that toll would not be raised until 1970. 1970, when it would be doubled to $1 but only charged heading east into New York. And as you mentioned, today still, cars only pay when they're heading east into New York. So we began this
2: story with a major congestion problem, Mm -hmm. a traffic crisis. How did the Holland Tunnel affect that? Did it make things better?
3: Did it change things for the better? Like, how did it change street traffic? Because both sides both sides of the river had to adjust their existing streets. Yeah. They had um, to widen certain places. Exa- right. They had to extend streets. For example, in New York, a bunch of streets were widened around the approaches and the exit of the tunnel, including Sixth Avenue, which was widened and then extended down through the village. Get this, Greg and listener. I mean, this is this is where I get kind of excited <laughs> um, because- Sixth Avenue used to stop at Carmine Street. Okay, you know Father Demo Square, that whole area by the basketball courts, but basically in the village. Yeah, just north, a couple blocks north of Houston Street. Sixth Avenue dead ended there up until the 1920s. But here, an anticipation for the opening of uh, the Holland Tunnel in the 1920s, it was ex- it was widened and then extended south of Houston all the way down to Canal in order to support the new traffic heading out of the tunnel. And that extension, it would have all kinds of side effects. It would call for the demolition of many, many buildings. If you think of 6th Avenue between Canal and Houston, you walk that stretch today, do it, walk it. And look, you'll see a lot of like funny incidental little parks and seating areas. You'll see buildings that were literally shaved in half, chopped to make way for that 6th Avenue extension. In doing so, um, they also opened up the street and allowed for the construction of the 8th Avenue subway line that was built at the same time and which uses the West 4th Street subway stop, which is right there, basically at Carmine Street, you know, which had been the terminus of 6th Avenue. So all of these things are very beneficial side effects.
2: Of a Holland Tunnel, which maybe you wouldn't use on in your everyday life if you if you live
3: in Manhattan. But these things would have changed your life in many ways. Yeah, and then in terms of your question, like, you know, 40,000, 50,000 cars a day could go through this tunnel. So it was relieving some pressure and congestion, although it's really kind of a hard question to answer because uh-huh. at the same time we're dealing with more and more cars and trucks being used in general. So, with so many more cars, it's almost like they needed to build another tunnel. And and they would, in fact, first they would build a bridge. They would succeed in tra- traversing the Hudson with the opening in 1931 of the George Washington Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, The first part of it would open in 1937. And that is a Midtown Tunnel that kind of parallels the same path as the Holland Tunnel. And interestingly, those two new options, the Lincoln Tunnel and the the George Washington, would relieve some of the pressure off of the Holland Tunnel. Because now there were more ways for vehicles to get across the Hudson. Finally, I should note that on June 27th, 1993, the Holland Tunnel became a national historic landmark. And one reason for that designation was that it provided the very first use of mechanical ventilation in a vehicular tunnel in the world. So it was those fans. Those big fans. (laughs) Yes. So we really do hope that the next time you drive through the Holland Tunnel, maybe just slow down a little bit and take in that engineering marvel that surrounds you or at least relax like roll down your window take (laughs) it all in because there's plenty of fresh air or maybe keep it up and like hit the button (laughs) that keeps the air only circulating inside the car okay sure but at least know that there's plenty of fresh air at least coming up from the bottom of the holland tunnel
2: please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have some old images of the construction of the Holland Tunnel and perhaps some of that awful congestion that was on either side, just to have some before and after effects here. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. We also want to thank those who support us on Patreon.com with a small monthly donation to help us produce the show and a
3: bunch of extra bonus stuff as well. In fact, it is because of the support of the more than 800 people that have joined us on Patreon.com that Greg and I are able to do this show full-time. We literally couldn't produce this show without you and your generous monthly support. You do help us
2: offset the challenges of producing an independent podcast, so thank you. And for those who support us at the $5 level and up, we have our after-show conversation called The Takeout, where we discuss a few Miscellaneous things that didn't quite make the show including
3: what are you talking about today? Well,
2: we'll be talking about a couple things including one sort of a a general discussion on on the freezing of the Hudson River and the East River like Just pondering the question. Does this still happen in the same way that it used to happen back in 1918? Mm. I'll also be sharing a story about the very first bridge that was ever constructed over the Hudson River
3: I think I'm going to be talking about an innovation in the 1950s inside the tunnel, which was the introduction of the, quote, catwalk car. Oh, wow. A sort of sliding police seat Mm -hmm. that was used by the tunnel police um, that ran along the catwalk on the side of the tunnel. You know, there's that little (laughs) elevated mm -hmm, walkway. Mm hmm. When you become a patron, you join a fabulous group of people, including
2: Bick M and Andrew P from Manhattan, Andrew M from Brooklyn, Anna M from Stanley, New York, Brian B from Larchmont, Elizabeth G from Briarwood, Elizabeth H from Athens, Ohio, Tanya B from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Charles O from Los Angeles, California, and a listener from Scarsdale who goes only by the name captain america (laughs)
3: so thank you steve rogers (laughs) so join this fine group by visiting patreon.com slash bowery boys so thank you very
2: much for listening have a great new york week whether you live here or not see you real soon